Hey everybody, welcome to the show. Um, first things, if you're listening on an iOS device or an Apple device, whatever you want to call it, if you don't mind and you enjoy the show, go to the Apple Podcast app, write us a review, leave us five stars if you love it. That really helps us get found more when people go searching for podcasts. Today's show is brought to you by We Buy Rides. That's www.webuyrides.com. They're also on Facebook at We Buy Rides, and that's all just spelled normally there. Um, We Buy Rides is a third-party vendor for you to get the absolute best trade-in or cash value for your car you're trying to get sold. They will absolutely get you the most money that they can for your vehicle and one of the coolest things about dealing with them is is just in our negotiations i have thoroughly enjoyed the communication speed they're super responsive they're super kind they're very very generous um i have nothing but full faith that they'll take care of you if you're in the market for a four by four a diesel or a highline vehicle excuse me if you're in the market for a four by four diesel or highline vehicle we buy rides is a great place to either go see what they have on the lot or even just let them know what you're looking for and they'll do the best they can to get a vehicle for you um, at a super super reasonable price and you could even take your vehicle there get the appropriate trade-in get the maximum value and go get that checked out again that's we buy rides with a z.com and we buy rides on facebook my next sponsor is Infinite Off-Road. Infinite Off-Road has been with us since the beginning. They have a uh, full selection of Infinite Off-Road um, light bars, light pods, wheel rings, wheel whips, wheel whips, uh, whips, rock lights, uh, everything that you can think of, Infinite Off-Road has you covered. Um, they have a 25-year, you break it, they fix it warranty. That warranty even covers accidental damage. Um, super unheard of, and, and they warranty their products, I mean, not all the time, but I've never had an issue trying to get something warrantied through them. I've never heard of anyone trying to have an issue to get warrantied through them. Um, they're on Facebook at Infinite Off-Road, Instagram, Infinite Off-Road, and InfiniteOffRoad.com. And they actually have a coupon code for listeners of the show, 10% off Racing on the Rocks listeners. Uh, just type in code word ROCKS, R-O-C-K-S, at checkout, and that'll be 10% off the entire website and 10% off your entire order. InfiniteOffRoad.com, uh, excellent team to deal with, and I will love, love, love continuing to do business with them. My last sponsor is All Things UTV. All Things UTV is your one stop shop for your side-by-side parts. Um, I'm currently building a new car and I just got my quote for the thousands of dollars I'm gonna spend there. And I, the reason I wanna take my business to All Things UTV is because I know that I'm gonna get not only the best prices, the fastest shipping, the best customer service, but they have such a wide variety of parts, selection, uh, brands, what have you, that everything you need is in one place. I've seen Dustin Robbins and his, Dustin Robbins and his team uh, 
overnight ship, you know, really promptu ship, unexpected people getting their packages before they expected. Uh, really, really great team over there, and there's nothing but positive customer service. Um, I've just personally really enjoyed, and Dustin Robbins is extremely knowledgeable. Uh, All Things UTV has a lot of options or a lot of items and, and upgrades for your UTV that they've actually made in house. Uh, they've done their own R&D. I know I saw this evening they now have a, ta- a Talon tailgate. It's absolutely awesome. All R&D'd in the house and uh, super, super, super innovation uh, or a super big amount of innovation coming out of that shop. And that's all things with a Z, utv.com, all things UTV on Instagram and all things UTV on Facebook. Now, today on the show, we are talking to a guy called Shock Jesus, uh, Phil Licciardi. Phil, if I said that wrong, don't get too mad at me. I did my best. Um, we go over everything from King of Hammers to everything in between and, and just a little bit of this and a little bit of that. Uh, Phil's background is in fabrication, uh, but we get a lot lot into the conversation, shock tuning, thoughts on King of Hammers, all that stuff. So without me rambling for a little bit more, here it is, ladies and gentlemen, Phil Licciardi. Get a drink and gather around. Let's talk drivers. Let's talk rigs. Let's talk skill. You've got the best of the best in the off-road racing world. Have a seat at the table with us and let's talk about racing on the rocks. This call is now being recorded. I have shocked Jesus himself. Phil is on the line. How you doing, Phil? Doing well. How are you? I am. I'm really, really good. Uh, I'm super thankful that you've taken some time out of your post-King of Hammers schedule uh, to kind of make some time for us because I reached out to you on your last East Coast adventure and uh, tried to make some time, and, and ever since then it's just been uh, calendar scheduling one way or another. But I'm super stoked we may finally make this happen, uh, and, and I have so many questions just right out of the gate. But uh, before we dive into everything, um, Tell me a little bit about yourself, because this is the first time that okay. you and I are getting a chance to talk. Um, where are you guys based out of? Where do you run shop out of right now? All right. I'm in Gardnerville, Nevada, which uh, most people are familiar with famous Lake Tahoe. Yes. I can pretty much see the, the ridge right now where Tahoe is from, from where I'm sitting in my room. Wow. So it's it's about 30 minutes drive um, just over the mountain as a crow flies. It's probably only 10 miles. Mm-hmm. So... Yeah, we're just up here, high desert, you know, pine nut mountains, whatever you want to call it. Yeah. And uh yeah. I think I think people people follow you on social media and it's it's so unique because um a lot of my following is east coast and uh northeast and uh kind of the, the mid north, I guess, I don't even know, mid America. Uh and, and it's so funny because you guys will be running trails in your Jeep and then the next picture you guys will be in your you know, your 4,400-ish buggy car out running some monster trails, and then the next thing is, you know, you guys crushing it through the desert. It's got to be, like, such a big blessing just to have every terrain right there at your fingertips. Absolutely. I I mean, I moved here by design. You know, I lived in the Sacramento, California area before this, which is, you know, I've got a lot of friends there, and they they still love it, but it was just, it was kind of hard for me to live there. Uh, you know, you got to put your rig on a trailer and go to a park or, or haul it way up the hill or haul it all the way to where I live to, to do anything. And, uh, you know, it, we did have Rubicon and uh, another trail, Four Dice, that a lot of people have probably heard of. Uh, those are still, I mean, geez, uh, the, the top side of Rubicon dumps out in Tahoe. 
So mm-hmm. that's that's still really close for me. And Fordyce is a little further now, all the way on the other side of the lake. Mm-hmm. So, um, but out of the house, I mean, you know, nobody really talks about the Northern Nevada trails because we don't want it to turn into Ripcon yeah. Fordyce type issues. So we <laughs> yeah. on, on the DL. Uh, yeah. But there's so much stuff out here. It's, it's just mecca for me. Yeah, well, that's one thing I wanted to talk about, too, and, and we can really just go ahead and kind of dive bomb into it. Um, hang on, my dogs have made it into the studio, and let me pick up this toy. She's sitting here squeaking at me. I got very serious about closing mine out of the room. This what happened there. <laughs> they would yeah. be all over me right now. What are you yeah. talking to? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, so that's one thing I followed you on. Uh, I follow you on Instagram and Facebook for a while. Uh, you've got a golden. And look, did I have a stroke, or is your dog's name Meatball? Well, uh, you're not wrong. Okay. <laughs> I, have two, I have two goldens. One, one is Waylon. One is Jesse. Uh, Jesse is the one who is as tall as she is wide as she is long. Perfect. So we call we just call her Meatball. Gotcha. Uh, you know, probably more often than I call her Jesse. She, I call her Jesse if she's being bad. <laughs> gotcha, gotcha. Uh, well, that's funny. So you recently got an Australian Shepherd as well, right? We did. Uh, that didn't that didn't work out. Okay. He, uh, he had some issues that we just couldn't couldn't solve in the time we had him. Uh, you know, some dogs are just broken, and I wasn't ready to give up, and Sarah wasn't ready to give up. But after a month of just no sleep, no improvement nothing just getting better we just uh decided to chat with a few people about it and the breeder was like yeah something's not okay with with the dog so we'll gladly take him back and that yeah. was bad because he was a cute little guy yeah I, i've got a i've got a mini australian and um she gave me some shit man when i first got her she ate through a wall a whole drywall <laughs> she ate she ate straight through it because uh i left her i actually went to winrock for two days and uh left her with my roommate and she did not like my roommate very much and uh, she chewed a wall actually out of the house through, like, the siding and everything. It was oh, wow. it was a it was a tough conversation to come back to uh, when my roommate, who owned the house, uh, just pointed at the wall. But that's a story for another day. Uh, <laughs> uh, but uh, you recently – did you guys recently get the four-door Jeep? The Not the truck, but the actual Jeep itself? The JK. Yeah. Uh, that's getting on – that's getting on two years now. Okay. Okay. We got, it, we got it right when the JLs came out, when they were just looking to dump the JKs, and we're like, "Well, sweet, we'll get the sweetest JK we can for you know way less money." And yeah. Uh, you guys have <laughs> you in particular. So let me roll this back here. My experience with the off-road community um, started in Jeeps. When I was 16, I got a uh, a piece of junk TJ and and put a Rough Country lift kit on it, and it was the world's greatest car that had ever been made. Uh, it was all. It was absolutely awesome. I loved it. And uh, right when I graduated college, I bought myself a brand new JK, and uh, I had off-road evol- off-road evolution uh, send me some coilovers and had the whole coilover system on it, and you know had tremendous amounts of money in this car, and it could hardly ride a green trail at Adventure Off-Road Park. It was the biggest waste of money, uh, and and I switched over to Razors after that, but. Um, always was a super big fan of Jeeps that work well. And it looks like you guys have done some, or you in particular, have done some work to the valving on the shocks and things like that, and you've got that Jeep working super well. Can you tell me a little bit about what you've done to it? 
So I wouldn't say it does that now because we've put the Spicer one tons in it, 40. I, it's time to go back in and, and reinvent it. But when it still had the Rubicon axles in it in 37s, man, that thing was on fire. It's uh, uh, Radflow two-and-a-half-inch shocks, and they're two tube bypasses. Mm-hmm. The rear made about 12 and a quarter inches of travel, and I think the front was about 10 inches of travel. That's a ton. And you could, you could drive that thing as hard as you wanted into all kinds of stuff to, to a degree. I mean, you know, just like a razor, if you go too hard into the wrong thing, you go, oh, where's the wheels? <laughs> yeah, 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 absolutely. I've, I've been victim to that before, so I understand that all too well. Right. Um, so then, you know, we've done a lot with those things. You know, that thing will, that thing will run through some pretty rough stuff at 70, 80 miles per hour. We did it on our last, uh, last kind of off-road adventure. It was pretty good. Yeah. And, and that kind of, I mean, really it's going to be the theme of my conversation with you or my goal is it just the springs that you had figured out or is it the valving and having like a really sufficient and adequate uh shock absorber on there like you guys i mean you guys were scooting and not only that it looked bearable you know uh, if i got in my old jeep with coilovers that were supposed to be valved and sprung you know for me to be able to at least manage myself like that but man the way that that car was set up was just junk and uh it just it really pissed me off i I left with a really bad taste in my mouth from it but you know is it just having those shocks valved correctly that gave it that kind of performance or was it the entire package as a whole it's a a little bit of everything i I really like the synergy springs i really like the metal cloak springs for uh having a soft enough rate but not just destroying themselves more or less and then when you have a big enough shock you can you can valve it accordingly to uh deal with all the all the different stuff that's going to go through and it won't melt down on you yeah. so it's it really is it's a balance of everything but i'd say 99 percent of it is valving like if you could put a coil spacer on a stock jeep and then i could put those shocks on it i could get you very good performance out of it with that same kind of setup I wish you had told me that in like 2014. <laughs> Before I, don't know I, that I knew that all that money, man. Yeah. Well, I mean, just the, you know, I guess hindsight's 2020, but here we are. <laughs> um, so well, I can tell you, we we had a 2010 JK mm-hmm. back when that first came out. Put you know 37th on it, the whole show had a Rubicon Express lift. Oh my gosh, that was the worst thing ever. That I mean. It just beat you up everywhere. It just it, it couldn't do anything, and and I don't know if it was springs or valving or both, but I mean it was obviously something was terrible, and I didn't know enough about it to deal with it at the time. Yeah, uh, I'd love a revisit on that one. Yeah, I had a uh, another I had a TJ uh, like the, an older '90s model, and it had the Rubicon Express. It's like the radius arms where the where the upper arm was actually on the lower arm. It was it was kind of a. It, I know that that still exists out there, um, and it did really well for me in the slow stuff. But again, you know, you should try and go over 15 miles an hour, and it's like you're in Vietnam, <laughs> right? <laughs> but yeah, right. but uh, you know, going to to that whole the, the Jeep cycle and everything. You know, you mentioned you're close to Rubicon, you're close to Fordyce. Um, when I was in the Jeep world, those were like pilgrimages that I was dead set my you know i'm gonna do this this is something that i have to do um you've mentioned a couple times on your facebook and things like that that like the rubicon has changed and and the the, the feel of it has changed and it's different than it used to be um what's changed about those iconic trails that makes you feel that way well a lot of it's oversight so 
being that I, I lived um, my last couple of years of high school in the Sacramento area, and then some years after that, you know, in Chico and, and all that, Rubicon was a staple for me. So I'd say, let's call it like 99 or 2000 was probably my first trip to the Rubicon with my buddy Jeremy Hengel. Mm-hmm. We jumped in his old Toyota. It was probably the middle of the night. I don't know if we even had any food, but we definitely had a 30-pack each for the five days. <laughs> oh, my God. And, Just and this old Toyota, man, it's on 38s. It had full-width axles, had, like, double-shackle rears and no locating bars. Right? Just It was about the sketchiest thing ever, and, and we were just having a ball. And the rear drive shaft's falling out of the slip as we're going down the trail. And, and neither, neither of us. I mean, I didn't have any lips at the end of the trip. It just melted off my face because I probably didn't drink any water. Oh, God. Uh, and while that's, in hindsight, yeah, that's terrible. I don't I don't condone, you know, just being completely obliterated mm-hmm. out doing things in automobiles. But nobody got hurt back then. There was a, I mean, there was a lot of people on the trail, but it really wasn't, I don't know, it wasn't a big deal. People seemed to be able to contain themselves better or you just didn't hear about it because we didn't have the social media and the exposure that there is now mm-hmm. so now it's just i mean there's police everywhere you're going to get in trouble for doing anything there's environmentalists everywhere talking about frogs or turtles or something mm-hmm. and they just i mean there's definitely some real issues out there mm-hmm. like toilet paper human waste you know this that and that trash those are all huge issues and we try to go do what we can to to take care of those. I mean, Pirates of the Rubicon put on a really good event that I haven't been to in a few years, but they do uh, their annual cleanup, and it's usually towards the end of October. They get you know a bunch of people up there, and they just go do the nasty. And oh man! But you have to if we want to keep the trails open. Mm-hmm. You know, there's just there's a handful of environmentalists that are just hell bent on no vehicles out there, and uh, I mean nobody's. Nobody's taking them out, so... Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, you know, that's... I had always, you know, hearing that, I expected you to, to mention something about environmentalists, but I hadn't really thought about police. I hadn't really thought about, um, you know, drinking, because I'm from the southeast where, you know, if you don't have a cooler in the back, you're the odd man out, you know? Um, totally. It's... Do you feel like the the soft... You know, I'm going to use the, we'll call it the millennial softness, like just that super hard left. We're seeing it bleed over into the to the OHV areas everywhere from uh, apparently the Rubicon to the dunes is where I'm seeing it the most. A lot of these dunes are, uh, especially the oceanfront dunes, uh, they're getting shut down left and right. And there's, you know, people in uh, Utah and Moab that are pushing for, you know, they're, they're just cutting these small corners like vehicles on the road and things like that. Uh, these public lands are getting shut down like crazy. Um, outside of, you know, just cleaning up after yourself and being a decent human being, is there anything that people can do to, to, you know, can people go sign petitions? Can people show up at events to show support? I mean, what can be done to keep these public lands open? Yeah, that's, uh, I mean, those are all, everything you can do to be involved. There's all kinds of petitions to be signed. Some of them get traction, some of them don't. Uh, Does you can the go do anything? I don't know. I don't know, honestly. I mean, I, someone sends one across. I usually sign it. I'm, mm-hmm. I'm so withdrawn from from those things. I mean, I, I I hate to say it, but I just expect Rubicon and Fordyce to be not around. Yeah. At some point, or at least you know, we're talking about them. The great times we used to have. I mean, we already do that. We still have a good time when we go, 
but it's not it's not like it used to be. You just have to be on your best behavior and 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 being a good steward of the environment and all that. Yeah, all of us are like that, but they don't. They're just trying to catch somebody slipping. They don't care. You know, they don't care that 99% of us are good and you know 1% are just shit bags. Yeah. Uh, they just they just want it gone and they'll by any means necessary. If you've ever heard that term, they're they're going to do that. Yeah. Yeah. Now, I mean, coming, you know, you said you, you went to high school in California, coming from that, that very environmentalist area, um, has there been just this massive uptick in, you know, kind of the environmentalist aggression, the environmentalist pushing so hard to have these lands closed off to OHV? Because I feel like it's not always been, you know, I mean, everybody wants, you know, there was always the environmentalist, but it seems like now they just have so much more power than they used to. They do. It's so trendy to be a communist. Oh, there it is. Yeah, no, that's, that's you, 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 you nailed it. it. <laughs> you nailed it. Well, I mean, not only the communism, but just the fact that it's it, the 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 trendiness of like, uh, you know, the the echo chambers of, okay, you're you know, this is extreme. Let me be more extreme than you. And like that mentality is trendy. That I hadn't, I hadn't really thought about that bleeding over into the, you know, that environmentalist sector. Oh, yeah. So, for example, in high school, I, first, I built my first Jeep, mm-hmm. and uh, we had this just, you know, I lived in Granite Bay, which is, I don't know how I'd relate that to where you're at, but it's like the Beverly Hills of North now. Okay. And it's it was a really nice area, really nice neighborhoods everywhere, you know, good money for the time. It's, it's ridiculous now, but what it was then, it was just, it was good. And there was this lake, Folsom Lake, and there was all kinds of rocks around the lake and, you know, beachfront, this, that, and the other. And you could drive all over that stuff. You could park on the side of the, of, of the lake, tailgate and all that. Oh boy. Well, the end of high school, I mean, they're starting to, starting to cut that off and no vehicles off pavement and this, that, and the other. And now I don't, I haven't been there in probably 10 years. I can't even imagine what it's like now. It's probably just like, you know, you're just, you're doing whatever the police say. You're just marching to their drum and that's, that is what it is. Park rangers, whatever else. It's just over, overrun. There's no more freedom. Yeah. Yeah. I get it. And I look, knock on wood here. It hadn't hit the Southeast yet and it's coming because, oh, yeah. uh, I mean, we have places like, uh, you know, TWRA land, for example, Windrock Brimstone, and, and a lot of my listeners are familiar with the area out in the Smoky Mountains. There's these huge 120,000, 180,000 private park, uh, you know, acreages of land, and they're all interconnected by these public land passes where people hunt on and do everything else in between. And, uh, man, it's coming. And, and, and if there's anything that I can say while we're on the topic of, of you know, the whole tread lightly movement, is just pick up after yourself, man. Just don't leave shit everywhere. Uh, I, I was, I just did a, a four, five, six hour one way trip at uh, Brimstone Windrock um, this Thanksgiving, and man, you just be in the middle of the woods, and you'll just see, you know, a hundred beer cans or someone's trash, literally just on the side of the trail, and uh, you know, you stop and pick up what you can, but you just just don't do it in the first place. It just drives me absolutely insane when you see that kind of thing because uh, you're just asking for. The, the criticism that the, the West Coast is facing right now, you're just asking you got what's it. here. So yeah, I, I experienced that on my last tune trip. Pretty much every park I went to, I mean, I get I get that the employees will will come through and clean everything up. Cause it's private mm-hmm. land; you're not under the scrutiny so much. But at the same time, it's like here's a trash can and all this shit right next to the trash can. Like mm-hmm. what? On yeah. earth? I mean, you you put your beer can down, you crush it with your foot, but that's the last step. 
you know, those trash can just put in the trash can. So I'll, I'll be like tuning chocks and, you know, as somebody comes back down the hill, I'm picking up cans and trash and plastic from side by sides and whatever. It's like, come on, people. Yeah. But, you know, yeah, not, it hasn't been an issue yet, but it will become an issue if people don't change. And, yeah, uh, yeah, you're exactly right. Yeah. So it might, exactly you know, right. makes me kind of feel like a pussy for, you know, caring so much, but I mean, it's, if, if anything, the environmentalists out here have done for me is it's made me conscious of that stuff. So yeah. I try to take care of it. Yeah, and, and I think I think you and I are a, a lot alike in, in the things that we believe and, and things we stand for. And, you know, just being conscious of it is, is really, that's, that's winning the battle. You know, even, I don't know, I don't even know how to phrase it without getting too far into it. But anyway, sure. uh, <laughs> you, you mentioned you come to the East Coast. Uh, you come to the East Coast, is it about once a year now? Yeah, we'll see if I do this year or what what it all entails. But last year I came for almost the entire month of April. I was tooling around Kentucky, Tennessee, Arkansas, Missouri. Now, are you, are you coming over here just to shock tune? That's what I, that's what last year's was. This year, this year I'll, man, I don't know. I just started kind of maybe brewing up a trip, just not even, not quite crossing the Mississippi, but going at least like to the Dallas-Fort Worth area. Mm-hmm. And then maybe, maybe up to Colorado or Utah for a couple folks and then cruise back. But we'll see. I mean, that's, yeah, that's just, uh, it's a pretty open market. Yeah. There's a lot of work to be done. Yeah, there is, especially on the full size. I know, um, you know, G-Force Racing Technology is kind of working with the side-by-side guys, but in terms of the big guys and shock tuning, I, I can think of one one guy out here who, who tuned shocks, and then I know you kind of, uh, you trained a gentleman uh, recently, or you worked with a gentleman recently who was back East Coast. Um, what's yeah. his name? Chris Wyatt. Okay, cool. Yeah, and full-size guys, side-by-side guys, check him out. Uh, I actually spoke with him, and uh, he was already, you know, he had just got back from working with you, and he already had a pretty significant amount of work lined up. It sounded like, um, yeah. So just <laughs> it's so. Let's talk about that before we go into the rest of it. How important is shock tuning to an off-road vehicle in any capacity? Well, I mean, there's a there's a few steps. You know, you build your rig, you get everything all sorted out. Maybe you got your spring rates right. Maybe you didn't. Get it running get the engine tuned and then if you don't chalk tune next you're i mean you just wasted your money on coilovers or whatever you did but granted there's a few different ways you can buy shocks and have them be already done i mean there's me and there's a bunch of different outfits that will sell pre-tuned shocks mm-hmm. and sometimes it's good sometimes it's not good you know i miss i miss the mark a few times and i offer a free revalve so yeah. you're really not out any more money it's just a little more work for me and yeah. that's another reason why I come to the East Coast because a lot of people will buy shocks for me, and I gotta I gotta make sure my product is uh, not garbage. Yeah, so come over and check everything out, touch them up, make sure everybody's happy, and then on to the next. That's what's up. Um, so let me ask you this: so a uh, guy who trail rides just his his you know beater with coilovers, is it worth shock tuning? Um, are you going to see a benefit from something that you order off the shelf from you know? Any of the, I don't even know who sells coilovers. You know, if I, if I go to a coilover manufacturer, just order some chocks or order some coilovers right out of the box. Um, is it worth, you know, let's just say two grand to get my shocks tuned? Two grand. That'd be a lot of money to get your shocks tuned, but I, I wouldn't say two grand would be 
would be worth it. That would be something somebody might spend on an entire season of shock tuning okay. for every different race. So like what what I charge is six hundred bucks. If I like if I didn't sell you the shocks, I don't have the shocks, got no experience. Is I charge six hundred bucks, sometimes seven hundred bucks if I'm doing work at a park that charges me to do work. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, as far as I'm concerned, it's imperative. You, I don't care what you're driving or what you're doing. You know the the help you'll get getting spring rates right, possibly sway bar placement, some adjustments for different things like that, and then all the internal valving of the shock, getting that stuff right. If you don't do that, you're you wasted your money on the shocks. I don't care if they're off the shelf from from who they're off the shelf. I mean, the the stuff that, I mean, I can just picture it in my head what comes in these shocks if you don't specify anything. And it's just, I mean, there's almost no applications that it works on. It's what's what's considered, in my opinion, safe valving. Mm-hmm. Let's say you got some guy who built himself a, a Jeep. Let's, let's use a Cherokee as an example. Mm-hmm. It's got some pretty dramatic steering angles from the factory. And some people don't understand steering geometry. So if you lifted that thing six inches... And you kept the pan hard bar in the factory location, and then you're like, you know what? I need to get this drag link flat. So you get a high steer arm, and you get the drag link all looking good, but you left your pan hard where it's at. What you've just created is this terrible, terrible situation called bump steer. When the steering wheel oscillates in your hand as you try to keep it straight through bumps on the road or wherever you're at, bump steer leads to death wobble. Death wobble leads to death. Uh, <laughs> That's so, especially if it happens on the road. Right. So if you've got off-the-shelf valving from pretty much any manufacturer, it's safe. It's gonna, it's gonna not move real fast. It's gonna pack or it's gonna stack or whatever. It's not, it's not gonna react very quickly. So you're not gonna get in a situation where like, oh sweet, I can hit these whoops at a million miles per hour. No, you're gonna hit the second whoop and you're gonna be like, oh okay, I hate my life and you <laughs> slow down. Then you won't die. <laughs> That's awesome. Okay, well, that's that's the answer I was fishing for. Is basically that that regardless of the application, uh, you can benefit from shock tuning for just Absolutely. all across the board. You can benefit. Um, that's funny you say that. That's that's a really well put way on why you should shock tune and, and how they come right out of the gate. Um, that's really well put. Uh, so let me ask you this, and, and this kind of you know we're kind of jumping around a little bit here. Um, Full size versus side by side. You have a you have a Turbo S, right? Ready? Okay. So you obviously you've got a full size buggy. Um, and for those who aren't familiar with with Phil's setup, it's it's much more of a West Coast uh, 4400 style car rather than a rock bouncer or something like that. But um, he's got a full size car and he has a Turbo S. When you go to shock tune those, you know, I mean. Trying to trying to think about the questions here. Uh, do do the out of the box razor shocks need a significant amount of tuning? Did they just miss the mark mark completely, or is an off the shelf razor tune spring setup is it okay? Uh, that's a loaded question. Okay, so, <laughs> everything can be improved upon. Okay, everything that I tune on or do or whatever can probably be improved upon, but. Generally, the the factory razors are kind of doing, or or any side by side, are kind of doing the same thing as what the off the shelf valving is doing, where it's safe. So you've got a maximum load capacity for your. Let's use a, let's use my razor as an example. It's a, it's a two seat um, Turbo S Velocity, so it's got the Walker Evy shocks on it. These shocks are pretty badass for what they are. Two and a half in the front, three three O's in the rear, and they've got a needle style 
Um, it's an IBP more or less with a needle style bump zone like a King IBP is. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a neat setup, but it's really slow from the factory. It's oversprung in the back. I think the front's, the front's pretty close to being sprung the way I would, would have it if you had some weight in the back. So if you noticed, I hung that spare tire way off the back, West Coast style. Best, best, see, best rear tire carrier I've ever seen in a Razor and have been planning on putting that on my endurance car for months and just switching over to a new car. I had a one-seater. I'm building a two-seater. And, uh, dude, you built that, and I was like, that bastard finished that. He, he <laughs> did it. He did it before me. And, uh, dude, first off, looks awesome. Looks super sturdy. Like, and, and to hear... Uh, actually, go ahead and finish before I, I interrupted you. Go ahead. You, you put uh, the tire back there. I put the tire carrier back there. I put a little cooler back there, a little bit of weight in the cooler. And the first time I really got to run it, because the weather's been so bad where I'm at, uh, was down at Hammers. Mm-hmm. Man, from the first pass, because I'd, I'd already valved the shocks up and, and got them you know, as far as I felt like they could go without doing springs. Mm-hmm. And I was, I was somewhat happy with it. I put that rear tire on it, and forget about it i was like okay i don't need to do anything else to this it is phenomenal and uh you know so just a little bit of valving work and then the springs came to life i mean it's a it's kind of a bad design because polaris tried to cheap out and they did a, a three and a half inch rear spring <coughs> on the three inch coilover and a 375 is your normal rear spring or your normal uh 3.0 shock spring <coughs> so you can have like a proper size spring slider well they've got these little tiny thin spring sliders as a result and they tend to break so i'm probably still gonna spring it and change stuff and revalve again but i mean for i mean a quick revalve leaving the stock springs just put the tire on the back and, and that revalve and my god I, I couldn't imagine it being any better right now so if some so I'm just going to use myself as an example here. Um, I have a I have a I have a pack racing spring kit on my car. It's supposed to be standard rates, but I have a longer springs uh, you know on top, and things got moved around a little bit. If I were to come to you and and basically say, hey, I'm going to put a 30 inch tire in a similar location to where you have, you know, obviously that's not that's not the standard Razor model. Um, when you position weight so far back on the car, and this is exactly what you're saying, but in, in a more technical term, you know, you increase the leverage on the on the suspension by shoving all that weight back there. Um, it makes it require a stiffer spring rate. You know, is, is that something I, have, I would have to take into account whenever I shift my shocks to you? Is that something worth mentioning? Hey, I'm going to run a spare tire 12 inches off the back of the bed, you know? It's, it's critical. So... My other problem with that is I, I haven't done enough razors where I'm just like, boom, okay, this is what I need to do. Here's, I mean, I bought the razor to do research, and I just hadn't had the time that I that I wanted to spend with uh, all that stuff. Mm-hmm. So I haven't, I don't have a formula yet for those. It's not like I like I'll take a solid axle 4400 car. Show me a picture of your 4400 car. I want like two measurements. Here's a shock package. I know it's gonna be good. I can't, I can't do that with a razor yet. Mm-hmm. But in time, I think I'll I think I'll understand it a little better. Yeah. Well, my goal here is to get you uh, not only you know an added bonus of, of doing the podcast is getting more people asking you questions and hopefully getting more side by guys side guys if you're interested uh, sending you their shocks because I can tell you right now the quote you gave me just for uh, you know tuning is the quote I said earlier about two grand that's what I've been quoted before so it's holy crap. So let me just yeah, just throw that out there for you, um, and that's you know that's respring valve, uh, the whole nine yards. But you know, oh, if it if it includes springs, that's you know that sound about right. 
Yeah, that's a good okay. deal. I mean, springs could be eight hundred bucks to a thousand bucks, depending on where you're getting them. Oof, dude, I didn't know that. Yeah. That's is it? Is it just quality springs cost good money, or is it? I mean, is I mean, why do springs make it so much more expensive? Well, a spring. So your front springs for a two two five shock or a three zero inner diameter. Mm-hmm. It's pretty much a hundred bucks a coil, any which way you slice it at retail. And then the rears for a 3.0 shock, they're going to be a 3.75 ID. I mean, I don't know what the current prices are, but for a while there, the cheapest one was about 150 bucks a spring, and the most expensive ones were up to 400 dollars a coil. So I, I think they've come down some since then. Mm-hmm. But I mean, spring springs are just expensive. Good springs are expensive. Cheap springs are just that. They, they fail. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I was about to say they don't work. They're not worth getting. Uh, well, good to know. I mean, you know, I'm just trying to paint a full picture for everybody listening. Um, so let me ask you this: with your ex- somewhat experience in the razor world, um, is it to me it is it is imperative uh, whether you want to race or whether you want to um, trail ride. It is imperative that you get your your shocks revalved at the very least. It's just imperative, um, sure. and, and that's something that you know I've come I've read every razor model, every stock setup. I've run every shock option um, that Polaris has offered, other than the Dynamics. Um, and uh, I was going to ask you about that too, but everything seems to need tuning. So side by side, guys, please reach out, get them tuned. Um, I ran on a kit. That the first car I ever had fully tuned, fully sprung, the whole everything. Uh, I had a setup from Shock Therapy on my on my 900, and uh, man, it's like just the most incredible difference when you get something that's got it's been figured out. Absolutely amazing. Right. Um, but with that, the Dynamic Shocks. Have you had an opportunity to play with those, look at those? Because I know that they're making their way into the 4400 cars as well. I have not. I I know I probably need to get on that. I haven't done much with the. Uh the factory style Fox IBPs for UTV. Mm-hmm. They've got a they've got a seal head design that's I mean, some people have no problems with it, some people do have problems with it. Me being the the couple that I've tried have been on Can Amps and they've been Loctited and all kinds of stuff where you're just you're melting seals, all mm-hmm. kinds of fun stuff just to get the shock to take just to take it apart. Mm-hmm. So I've kind of just I mean I've got enough work with every other kind of thing, so I've kind of just left those alone for now but i know i need to do it i'm pretty sure you have to have some sort of um i don't know if you could buy it online or if you just have to make it at home but basically some sort of plug-in system for that spool valve Mm -hmm. so that you can even take it apart and or reassemble it yourself Mm -hmm. without uh you know it being on the vehicle Hmm. so i just haven't haven't gone down that road yet i'm sure this year is going to be an interesting one where i probably better get after it (laughs) get left behind yeah, I, I I understand, uh, but I also understand having high demand kind of you know pushes that timeline out a little bit. Um, but from everything I've seen, those dynamic systems in person and on the you know race cars, uh, they're pretty they're pretty pretty neat. That's about oh yeah, coming yeah, up. That's going to be cool. the way of the future. Yeah. Now, uh, you know, have you heard? I, I'm you know I'm going to throw a little bit of information out here. Have you heard about this 4400 spec UTV that they're coming out with? I have, and it looks insane, and I think it'll do, I think it'll do, for the price especially, mm-hmm. I think it'll do whatever anybody wants it to do, and, uh, you know, you just got to be a little careful here and there, and that's all it is. So, what what exactly, I mean, who who's making this car? Do we know that yet? I don't yet? know. I don't know. Somebody, I mean, 
there were some drunken nights by the fire, uh, <laughs> hammers, and people were talking about it and this, that, and there. I don't remember. I know, um, I know I know somebody involved with maybe not actually working on it, but is at least good friends with whoever's doing it. Mm-hmm. That's all I remember about the conversation. <laughs> but uh, yeah. what I've seen of it and heard of it, it just sounds it sounds really cool. Yeah. Now, what what is just because I'm basically I'm trying to validate my sources here too. Uh, what's the price point that you've heard? That's a good one. I I <laughs> pretty foggy nights. I wanted to say I heard something <laughs> like thirty or sixty grand. Okay. He's yeah. Get you the whole show. Maybe seventy. I don't know. But it wasn't. It wasn't three hundred fifty thousand. Like you know, yeah. the super badass competition. Forty yeah. hundreds now. Yeah. So you know. Okay. So let me, let me paint this full picture here. Um, basically, when we say forty four hundred spec UTV, this is a car. And correct me, interject at any point. This is a car that is equivalent or able to compete at the forty four hundred ultra four level, right out of the box. Just you know, the same as you go to your local dealer and pick up a side-by-side, um, this is going to be a, a third-party manufacturer that, that just comes out and you've got this full-blown end-of-story race car um, that's that's pretty pretty dang competitive straight out of the gate. And it's I, I've heard that 30, 60, 50 range thrown around. Um, I would imagine that they would have some kind of tiers and options and things and bells and whistles, but uh, that is a game-changer in the off-road racing world. Uh, I'm super stoked to see what comes from that and that kind of leads me into this next question how about a utv finishing the 4400 course at king of hammers that was really cool i was just sitting here at home on the couch and every once in a while this can-am pops up and just Mm -hmm. scooting around people like look at you go man he just did it all day long it was awesome yeah so the difference between the utv king of hammers course and the 4400 course included what do you know, well, I don't all know. Of it? maybe I don't just know. a few trails? Yeah, it, it wasn't. It, did they? Ha- I want to say, did they have to go up Chocolate Thunder and the UTVs didn't have to go up it? They had bypasses. Uh, I think that was the main difference. It's a lot of those hard rock trails. Uh, the bypasses that the UTVs had, they basically were just shut down. Sure. I mean, any, any yeah. Possible, I, was, I was so deep in work when the UTVs were actually doing their thing, I don't true. even know what happened. That's true. Um, I know well, K&M swept it. We're going to talk about it because, I mean, that's concerning. That is concerning <laughs> for, for, so for someone who, I mean, I'm a, I, I've been a Polaris guy from day one, and I've had uh, McCoy on here. I've had the Wolf Brothers on here. Uh, I've, I've, got, I've reached out to Cheney. I've got confirmation that a bunch of these guys who won uh, are going to get on the show here in a little while. Um, dude, Can-Am, Can-Am has built a, a hell of a machine, and, and Polaris with the Pro XP right now um, – you know, the response to the Pro XP was really poor. You being someone who is, is kind of outside the side-by-side world, what are your thoughts as you look into this this evolving beast that is the UTV world? Man, I really, I really don't know what the what the be-all end-all for this stuff is, and, and I don't, I don't know that it's particularly the the fact that it's a Can-Am that one. I, I don't, I don't think that it really matters what brand it is i think it's the people the prep the driving that got those things to the finish line uh in that manner i mean you know who uh phil blurton is right yeah yeah dude had a killer car yeah he's had he's had great success he he wins just about i was surprised to see him in third not first he wins about everything he ever race starts so 
uh, I just know their their program's super tight. And the Can-Ams, you know, it's a it's a little lower, a little longer, and that's going to be a benefit in the desert. But I don't see I don't see them having a huge benefit in the rocks. So I I would just put it mostly on on the drivers and the prep and and the how they put the vehicles together, not not the brand by any means. Yeah, to accomplish it with anything. I would agree with you because a, a lot of what I've seen from these Polaris guys is that. Hang on, my wife's walking into the studio here. Um, a lot of the Polaris guys that I've talked to, they have um, basically just explained the fact that, um, you know, Can-Am dumped a whole lot of money into the King of Hammers. Obviously, they were the title sponsor. Um, that Ultra 4, Dave Cole, they made the race course way more desert-oriented, and they made everything, you know, very Can-Am-focused, Can-Am, I guess, successful uh the course was more successful for a can-am how do you how do you feel about that is, is there any truth to that you know oh man everybody's got their uh opinions on on bias and whatever and i don't know i don't know that it's i don't know that it's a thing or just coincidence or you know he's an easy person to blame for for uh shortcomings mm-hmm. you know i i mean i'm my can-am or my Polaris isn't anything fancy by any means. Damn near all stock, and uh, I mean I'm rolling out flat out in the whoops at seventy. Yeah, it'll and it did it. I put two hundred fifty miles on it, going back and forth to my tuning spot on this trip. I mean, just beating the crap out of it. If I if I had my foot on the throttle, it was wide open, and uh, and it took it. And I I'm not saying I could finish this race by any means or do anything, but I I don't think. I mean, how fast are they going in the desert? The Can-Ams are they going 100 miles per hour sustained, and the Razor people are only going 70. I mean, where's where's the difference? I think I think it just go back to driver and prep. Yeah, I agree with you. And and I've talked to uh, some guys at the Polaris team. I've even talked to uh, it's you know I don't I don't know how much of this is public whatnot, but that's what I'm here for. Um, I spoke with the uh, race team manager at Polaris, and uh, he's recently been moved to a completely different off-road department and it seems like Polaris is making a lot of internal change I mean I think when they when when the Pro XP came out and they had such a flat I mean the release was just flat no one was happy it seemed like even you know even the promos were done uh, weird and it just wasn't a successful release Um, you know Polaris has made some big internal changes I've talked with some of their drivers here recently um, and they have been making statements that basically Polaris is going to redo their whole marketing scheme and this and that and I really think that that's part of what this has come down to now I say that and you know Can-Am swept the podium uh, and the proof is in the pudding there to a certain degree but the Pro XP is an awesome machine I drove it it's sick the Turbo S is a sick machine Um, I, I really think that we're in this just weird nebulous where I don't know either Polaris has to make a small change or you know I don't know I don't know what comes next and that's kind of where I guess I can leave it you know so tell me about the Pro XP that just reminds me of like the non non Turbo S model but it was the the brand new thing they changed the shape a little bit but is it still like a a weak diff front end smaller AR or smaller control arms narrower setup on on ATV type tires I think it's um, so it is very turbo s esque in the stock suspension um, and and look I'm not sponsored by Polaris I'm not gonna do that or not that way at all let me just go ahead and kind of throw that out there um, it is it is a different engineered car for sure 
Um, okay. I, I got a chance to get in it, sit in it. You sit different. Like every every you know everything's different in terms of the chassis. Like things feel uh-huh. different. But when you drive it, the the driver experience and the drivability of that car is substantially different than the standard 1000 turbo. It's substantially different than the RS1, which is its own demon. Um, I've right. never driven a turbo S, but it would. the way it's been explained to me is that the turbo S is a two-seat car that drives like the RS1. And the RS1 is very darty in the sense of you turn it and you gas it and, and then like I always put it like this. You know when you're driving your truck, you turn the steering wheel, you kind of feel your body kind of lean to whichever way you're, the opposite way you're turning. And and then when you get a go-kart, you turn a go-kart and like, as you turn the steering wheel, your car's already changing direction. That's the direction you're going. Um, that's very much how the RS1 felt. But it was somewhere in the middle with the Pro XP, um, where the, 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 the main thing I noticed was the turning radius. This car will literally turn underneath itself. Um, so oh, wow. it was just, it was, I was blown away. Um, I actually got a chance to take out one of the guys from Nitro Circus. I took his out and, um, we ran through some rock trails. I ran through some whoops. I jumped it. Um, he had done some tender spring modifications, so it rode really nice. Um, but just the maneuverability in the rocks, cause we were going up some pretty substantial rocks, had 32s on it. Um, there was, I think he had like super ATV arms on there. I mean, not crazy suspension changes or anything like that. Uh, and the car just drove beautifully. Uh, I, I really see that Pro XP has a significant advantage in any kind of trail situation that's not open desert over every other competitor. Um, I've been in the Kawasaki, I've been in an X3, I've been in all the other cars, and uh, if it was a pure rock trail race, the Pro XP I mean, put, I put my word on it, would demolish everyone else. Just in how you can drive it, how it feels, how it steers, where it goes. Um, I just, I still see issues with Can-Am in the, in those trail sections where it, it's kind of like a, we're, ju- we're going to force the car through the trail. Whereas that Pro XP, I mean, you're like, you're, you really are weaving and dancing through those rocks. I believe it. And that's why I went, well, I went in the direction of the Turbo S because I didn't want to have to do arms and, all kinds of stuff right away. I wanted I wanted that full width unit to to mess with, and uh, I like the the more upright seating position, the visibility. You know, it's it's more of a a trail rider boost cruiser in my opinion than the Can Am is. Yeah, I, I would agree with yeah. that. And if it took off, I was I was going to go buy a Can Am too and start you know getting getting their technology sorted out. But I just I haven't had time to do anything. So. Yeah, I get it, and and, and honestly, I, I say that big spill for pro uh, for the Pro XP, but man, Turbo S is a good car, uh, and the X3 is just, I mean, it, the X3 won the Southeast Pro Rock Racing Endurance Series. I mean, smashed smashed everybody. I got I was yeah. in the first one. It was it was granted. I have very little experience in an actual race, um, but one and two in that race lapped me. Uh, they just unbelievably faster than everything else. Um, but I would imagine wow. it probably doesn't drive as good. And that's coming from someone who's much more of a trail, you know, kind of booze cruise kind of guy. Um, love the way those cars drive. But again, haven't been in X3 during a race, but watching them pass me, they did it with ease. Um, <laughs> but all that said, uh, you know, I, I think UTV world, it's a bunch of question marks right now. Um, I think Polaris in 2020 or 2021 early, uh, to me, 2020 has got to be their answer back for the for the Turbo RR from X3. Um, 
they're going to come out with a 72 inch Pro XP, and it and it should it should it should make up for where the 64 inch has issues. Uh, I would imagine the 72 inch version of that car is going to be pretty pretty sweet. Perfect. Okay, big cars, 4400, your wheelhouse. Uh, how did you? How did you, as the shock tuner, how did you fare with your top ten guys? Because you had a few in the top ten, didn't you? Yeah, I had four. Um, I can't, I can't take credit for tuning uh, one of them because it was just shock service. But they were having, they were having some issues getting. Um, I don't know. They had a lot of air in their shocks, <laughs> and they kind of did a trial run with me back before nationals to see, you know, to see if I saw anything. And I didn't know, I didn't know it was like an experiment, more or less. But they were just, you know, kind of baited me into a couple of questions, like, what'd you notice? I'm like, well, it was kind of strange. I mean, a couple seals here and there looked like they were brand new, and a couple things in those shocks looked like it had never been touched, and they were full air. And uh, they are kind of like, okay, that's what they thought. So uh, they ended up giving me all 40 of their shocks to do before that was a thing. I mean, I've I've got a setup where I can have, you know, three shocks apart and working on them and rotating through and bleeding and doing all that. But what I'd do is I'd open up a shock and I'd be like, oh, this needs this, 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 and this, and that one needs that, 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 and that. My operation is fairly small, so I don't dock like I don't have ten thousand dollars in you know build parts on hand to to fix everything. So it took it took every bit of two months to finish all forty of those shocks and make them. To where I was comfortable handing them back, saying these are these are good. I think these will be good. That's 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 sick though for your business, man. That's that's absolutely awesome news. And uh, you know, I know you 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 were with one of the prominent race teams at at Ultra Four uh, at King of Hammers. You you worked on their stuff, if I recall correctly. Um, didn't didn't they deliver their shocks by helicopter? <laughs> they picked up uh, eight of them from that trial run. Yeah. Okay. Was, uh, gotcha. Brothers Racing. Yeah, yeah. dude, dude uh, they, let me tell you, that's got to be the most baller move <laughs> that I've heard of in the off-road world is, uh, right. yeah, let me just send my helicopter. So uh, oh, good dude. good for yeah. those guys. They're good. They're really good dudes, and they, they deserve the best. Or maybe I'm not the best, but I, I will work as hard as I possibly can mm-hmm. for anybody to give them the best product that I can. And it was really fun because, you know, I, I didn't know what was going to happen when we got down there. Like, are we going to get down here and the shocks are just going to, you know, foam up again for some reason, something I missed. I don't know. Well, that wasn't the case. I, I, you know, they all had their shocks and they all went out testing and they're, they're used to their shocks fading in about 30 minutes and they're reporting back like no fade. Everything's perfect. Nice. And then um, Marcos, who got third with that broken A-arm and all that, he, I mean, he was going to win. It was incredible. If that arm didn't break, he was – oh, let me give a little plug for Elrod's Pro Straps. Yeah. A, yeah. A good buddy that's in my club. Uh, he makes the best limit straps on the planet. And uh, I, He probably has the best marketing campaign possible. I mean, anyone who's ever made limit straps, because uh, I watched Marcus not only break that A-arm, but I watched <laughs> him hobble that car back all the way back to the finish line. Just, I mean – just every bit of tension was on that limit strap in that entire car. Right. That's that was like awesome. where where trophy trucks typically have to run four straps per corner mm-hmm. and regular straps. They can get away with two of the L rods, no problem, and it's just not even a thing. Dude, so, it's crazy. Yeah, it's good stuff. 
so he's I, I i hope he gets more time to make straps again he's been super busy like he's he's down at ultra four building the short courses and stuff like that and he does does a lot of the dirt work with uh norcal rock racing too and all those fun things so he's he's a busy guy yeah yeah i would imagine so yeah but you know i'll wait i'll wait for the best straps possible for but, sure yeah, marcos uh texted me after the race and he's like shock did or shock did amazing all race and and they've been used to uh you know bottoming out pretty hard after just racing for a little while and then getting beat up all day but we did not hear that raul got six that was awesome yeah another one i just just serviced didn't tune and then i i tuned on john hall's or uh, sorry excuse me um john webb's car that was a fifth place finish a brand new fishmouth fabworks car uh i can't take credit for the valving um, Mike Kim put the valving in it uh, a couple days before. I got to turn tubes on it. So mm-hmm. Mike Kim's uh, super high up in Fox, if you're not familiar. Mm-hmm. Nancy Fancy Tuner. <laughs> and then Dan Wyrick, I'll take credit for all the tuning on that car. He was ninth place. He put in a hell of an effort and uh, got her done. He's on, It's a Radflow car. That's pretty cool. Yeah. So, yep, another UFO, Joe Thompson car. Is the UFO yeah. car the future? Or, I mean, I mean, we're, we're at such this crazy point where we've got so many different styles of car. We have the UFO car. You have the laser nut car. You have Pellegrino's car. You have a solid axle, you know, front and rear. And then you have IFS. Like, what is the answer? Because it just goes back and forth. Is it just who's, who's day? Is it? There's so much. I mean, a lot of this race is luck. But there are so many fantastic cars out there. Yeah, Joe Thompson's building some of the finest machines on the planet. The Campbells are building amazing machines. Dan Trout, Fishmouth Fabworks, builds amazing machines. Miller builds amazing machines. Uh, I'm sure I'm forgetting a number of people that just do awesome stuff. I mean, the, the laser nut car, they, they've been working on that, working on that. Man, about tasted victory on that one, too. Man. Uh, <laughs> what a trip. Dude, and, and we talked about it a little bit. I don't know if we were recording yet, but um, this year's King of Hammers was just awesome as a spectator because everyone that got, I mean, I don't wish it on anyone that gets in first place to have this happen, but in terms of drama and just the way it went on, everybody that got in first place got cursed and just destroyed something to where they killed him out of the race. I mean, I, I remember watching, I think Bailey had just gone out of first place and uh, Randy Slauson was, you know, taking the lead. And then I don't, I think his transmission went out or a third member. Or Slauson? I don't Slauson yeah. lost the rear diff again. You uh. can't ever count Slauson out. I mean, in that car, he's going to be one of the fastest. I mean, he's one of the fastest guys in the desert in that car, but then forget about it when he's on the rocks. He's gone. Dude's so, gone. He's yeah. Gone, you know? It, that's something that, that you know, uh, I think Ian Johnson was talking about it. There is this weird thing about King of the Hammers where Randy, they use Randy as an example. Um, it doesn't matter, you know, it, Randy doesn't race the entire Ultra Force season. He races King of Hammers, and, and you know, he, he Ian was like, well, why don't you race the entire season? And Randy looked at him and said, hey, well, you know, who won King of Hammers in 2013? And Ian, you know, rattled it off exactly who it was, and he said, okay, who won the Ultra Force series that year? And he was like, I have no idea. He's like, that's why we try and win King of the Hammers. And that's why we right. focus on King of the Hammers. And uh, wh- what is this nostalgia that has come with King of Hammers? I mean, obviously it's been marketed as the hardest one-day race ever. And there's a few other races that say that. Uh, but, I mean, I think you and I would agree that it is. But, I mean, why is King of Hammers just the absolute pinnacle of off-road racing? I couldn't tell you other than whether it's just that that particular part of the desert where stuff just can't survive 
or I mean, oh man, I I don't know, I don't know. It's just it's it's the longest one we do, short of like just straight desert races. Uh, San Felipe, what are they? I don't remember how long the San Felipe race was, but they had they had some rocks in that, but not a lot. Ridgecrest had some rocks, but not a lot. But Hammers, I mean, it's like maybe not distance wise, but you're spending more time in the rocks at the Hammers than you are on any other part of the course, unless you're broken, parked in the desert. You know, it's it's just these these rocks are unforgiving. And you know, you, it's the the biggest test of man, machine, woman, machine, whatever. Mm-hmm. Uh, equip- oh, and speaking of that, I better get back to it before I forget who else builds nice cars. Obviously, Randy Slauson built the hell of a car, uh, and then Paul Bochel's cars. I mean, look at Healy. Yeah, here we're dicing it back and forth, back and forth, until both of them just had you know a couple of good runs of bad luck. Yeah, but, and you know, they were fast. They were so fast, so much. I mean, yeah. it was. It was crazy, just those two out of the gate going back and forth. And, and when one passed, I mean, I would turn, around, turn away and look at something else for a second. And, you know, six or seven minutes went by, and, and Healy's got like a 15-minute lead on Share, And right. it was just crazy amounts of distance being covered in those cars for sure. And then look at them both get took out just by bullshit. Yep. It's just crazy. <laughs> it is crazy. Now, let me ask you this, because... Uh, I don't, again, I don't remember if we talked about it on air or not, but, um, a lot of talk that King of Hammers isn't as hard as it used to be. It's, it's, they've made it too easy. You know, obviously the, the, the cars are getting more advanced. The cars are getting tougher. The designs are getting better. But, uh, it seems like there was less uphill trail, uh, uphill rock trails, more desert this year. Um, you know, obviously that's a, that's a decision that's made ahead of time. Um, is King of Hammers getting easier? Is it too easy? I don't. I don't believe so. I do like that. Uh, it's over for some folks in the daylight. Yep. Hell, the first year I I raced in the car with my buddy Doug. That's Doug Axel's Doug. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> familiar with that whole situation. But, yeah. <laughs> so we we built the car in 2011. After I said I'd never. After going to King of the Hammers in 2011, I said I, I will never build a car and be involved in this i love spectating but i will never build a car just because i watched all my friends just that were racing that you know down to their last penny trying to make this happen and you know they're fighting with each other the cars are breaking stuff's not even making it to the start line and it and it just looked miserable to me i was doing everything i could to help as well but i I was not going to do anything sober i was just (laughs) i was going to enjoy my time i wasn't going to make it like real work Uh well then a few months rolled by and Doug was there too. That was his first King of the Hammers as well, you know, spectating. And he was there and he's like a few months later he's like, So, wanna build a car? <laughs> and for Doug, uh, hell yeah, I'll build a car, man. That's yeah. one of my best friends on this planet and you know, it's he's not gonna give me any shit about anything, he'll let me do whatever I want and we'll uh-huh. go ahead and do it. And uh so we built that car and we, we got it built the best thing we could and raced in twenty twelve and finished. It's the only year we finished. Dude, awesome. It was cool. But we finished at like, I don't know, right, I think they were closing at 8 or 10. Uh-huh. And we finished probably 20 minutes before they, they shut the doors. And then we go back and look at the other stuff. And I, I want to say in 12, was it Miller or Healy? One of those guys won uh, in 12. I can look at it. King of Hammers, winner, 2000, 2012? Yeah. Um. <clears throat> Gotta love the internet. It just pulls up Shane. It says Shane <laughs> wins. Okay. Uh, Eric Miller wins 2012. Okay. 
he he finished at like two or three. <laughs> <laughs> and that that was the first year. The first year was kind of like a it was a desert and rock loop, and then the second and there was just two laps, and the second lap was a desert and rock loop plus spooners and outer limits. And we were we were getting into outer limits at dark, and man, I we didn't pre-run that section. I thought we were lost and off course because GPS stopped working. But then they're like, oh, no, there's a broken car. Oh, there's another broken car. And we just kind of wiggle our way back up. I'm like, man, we're, we're like actually on track to maybe get this done. And we just, uh, you know, finished her up somehow. And it was really cool. And it's eluded us every year since. And, so how many uh, times Doug, have you been in that car to try to race? How many what now? How many times have you been in the car to try to finish? Just the once. Because the next year we did not LCQ in, and then after that, later that year, I broke my neck and I just wasn't going to get any more cars. So. Yeah, yeah, that would uh, that would probably that would probably do more than stop me from getting a car. How'd you break your neck, man? Uh big dune transfer, big jump on a dirt bike, and it went wrong. And uh, I got paralyzed for a minute, broke nine vertebrae, damaged the lung, the rib. And it was a uh, it's an ugly one that still haunts me to this day, but I'm all right now. Well, it's good to hear. I mean, did you guys, I mean, that, I'm assuming that took like a serious amount of rehab. How long was it before until you were like, you know, roaring to go again? <laughs> I don't think I was ever roaring. I don't think I've roared since. But, <laughs> but, uh, after that, man, they, the, the doctors in Nevada, I didn't live in Nevada yet, but the doctors in Nevada were like, oh yeah, just take a couple weeks off of work. You know, and then just ease back into it. No heavy lifting for a while, whatever, yada, yada, yada. I was like, okay, that sounds good. And I, I mean, I walked into the hospital, the first hospital, un, under my own power, and uh, barely. And then they didn't really believe me how bad it was. And I didn't know how bad it was. I, don't, I got this weird tolerance for pain that's not right. And uh, then they started taking x-rays, and they, like, immediately immobilized me, morphined me up, and then put me on a helicopter to Reno. <laughs> Whoa. And then I got to Reno, and they, they started figuring everything out. And they're like, oh, yeah, you're pretty fucked up, man. I was like, well, I don't know. So I walked out of there a few days later under my own power, too. And uh, when I got to – I got back to Sacramento to see my primary care type people. And they're like, well, you can't ever take this neck brace off. you got to wear it 10 weeks. You barely should even take it off while you're showering. You're going to be paralyzed if you move funny. It's like – Oh god, man! I almost didn't even go to the hospital. What are you talking about? Oh my gosh, that's that is that is uh, that is stressful to say the least. Well, they did as a result more damage than good was done. So I got a lot of bone spurs growing and weird things happening on my neck, and I started having tons of neurological issues just from the atrophy of not moving. Yeah, uh, and it, you know they, then they wanted to do surgery, but they couldn't tell me why. And I'm like, well, what are you going to do? They're like, well, we're just going to basically like we're just going to get in there and cut things until we're happy i'm like okay well you're not doing anything bye guys but I, I yeah that's probably not the best thing i want to hear you know in, no. in your situation for sure yep i got hooked up with a guy in auburn california kairosport.net and he just uh just popping and breaking and doing some different fancy therapies and icing and stuff he got me back on my feet and a lot of my neurological problems sorted out in just a couple of weeks I kept going. I still go there. I drive all the way. I drive three hours to Auburn, California, once a week to get my back worked on. It's pretty awesome. Yeah, that's. I mean, 
you know, hats off to your doctor for figuring yeah. something out that works. Holy crap. I know a lot of people that that would never, you know, never get fixed. So No, you know, just back surgery is like 4% successful too, so you, that, that was not on my list. Oh, okay. Yeah. Well, I, I'm glad to have you here, first off. <laughs> and and uh, second off, I'm, I'm glad that you're, you know, I'm glad you're, I don't know. I'm just glad you're all right, man. <laughs> I appreciate that. Yeah. Uh, well, I mean, all in all, wrap it back around to that question. Is King of Hammers too easy? I don't think so. You don't I mean, think they could, so? They could add, you know, like, let's see. Let's say on the last lap, they added, and it was the last lap towards the end of the race, they added one more absolutely disgusting uphill trail that just ruined everybody's day. And then you did your last couple things before the finish line. You want you want to make it like a serious deal breaker? Do it like that. Mm-hmm. That could be that could and because because right now it's all about traffic and flow of the race. I mean yeah. after after what was it Jackhammer a couple of years ago where there was like a three or four hour traffic jam and nobody could get up the damn thing and you know very few people got around. And then they ended up having to bypass everybody on lap three mm-hmm. just to you know get them back on course. I, yeah, you obviously can't have that kind of stuff on lap two. You're going to get a lot of guys that have no business racing, you know, jamming things up. We call them trail tampons. Up here. <laughs> I like it. <laughs> and then you got a lot of a lot of guys that uh, do have business racing, but still end up with some bad luck or break something or you know whatever. Winch can't winch doesn't work. There's just so many factors involved. If they don't send them down these hard trails, then you're going to end up with another situation like that, and that wasn't any fun for anybody. You pay all this money to race, you want to go race, you don't want to be in a parking lot. Yeah, agreed. Let me ask you this. I think you have it nailed down with, you know, basically the survivors from laps one and two have to hit this last, you know, hammers, traditional hammers, obstacle or trail. Um, Big thing that I kind of had beef with, which um, I talked to a couple people about it, and their, their comments made sense, but why are we not going up back door? Like, the most iconic... King of Hammers, Johnson Valley, you have Chocolate Thunder, and then you have Backdoor. I feel like those are the two. You have Outer Limits as well, but, like, I mean, it's a bottleneck, but it's King of the Hammers. Go up Backdoor if you're in a 4400 car. That's crazy to me that they didn't make them uh, go up that at least once. Well, it's such a thing still. I mean, it's just a winch fest. Yeah. All these cars are super cool, but, you know, now almost now the tire balls are done. Uh, everybody's got a spare tire on the back. Everybody's got all their tools and, and whatnot on hand. I mean, before, people might not even have jacks or tools to change their tire. They're just rolling out till all the tire balls went everywhere. Yeah. Uh, so so you're really limiting people's chance of actually driving up that. So now people are getting out. And get, I mean, think about the Tom Ways year where, where uh, what was it, 4494? I don't, I don't want to say the wrong name, but I think if you think back to – I don't know if it was on Elvis or what trail it was, where John Webb's got his tunes playing. He's going around these guys that were being a trail tampon, mm-hmm. and then Randy Spalson drives over him. Yeah, you know, no, that one? Yeah, it's a okay. super iconic thing. So those guys were also winching up uh, back door when Waze came through, and Waze, Waze, you know, did the two wheel tire, two wheel thing, almost rolled over. He took the right line, almost rolled over on him, ran over the winch line, popped it and then crossed over and passed and went up, and they probably threw another rock or something. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> it's, it, I think it becomes a safety issue. It does. It does. And, and that's, a, that's a super valid point, and, and I'm not sure what the answer is. Um, I wish there was some kind of funnel system that didn't end 
with guys being broken on the on like on back door. You know, I, right. it, I wish there was some kind of like gatekeeper on there because big fan. I know at night at at night during King of Hammers, you have people going to back door, but I'm a big fan of watching those guys. And maybe it's the East Coast rock bouncer fan in me um, during the race, man, trying to. I would say 65% of people try to go up it at least before they winch. I mean, you have the other people who, who just run up to it and they just, you know, they know they're going to winch and they just right. do it from the get go. But, uh, there's 20, you know, 20% of people that make that door, you know, have a good clean shot on it. They make it up. And that's such a big time saver that, you know, uh, any of the guys that we mentioned earlier, you know, if they, if nine out of the 10 or nine out of the top 10, struggled to go up back door and you had you know seventh place you know one shot back door i mean they essentially could skip two or three people in line just because back door and and to me that's kind of the like hype and and, and joy that is king of hammers and, and and has that big potential and that big obstacle I, I just wish there was a way that they could incorporate it somehow because again everyone's comments about bottlenecks and safety especially um those are all extremely valid I think if they did if they did like a tube or something with an over under, mm-hmm. so they could come out of the desert and then like instead of back door being uh like let's say the la- the beginning of the last lap, it's the end of the last lap. You got to go up this son of a gun, you know. But you don't have to go up resolution. You can go back and loop around and then like go through the tunnel and jump back on the trail or something. Yeah, oh, yeah, hundred uh, percent. That's exactly what I'm. I mean, and and what it also does too. Is it generates the spectator spot that Chocolate Thunder, you know, was seemingly this year. I think there's a lot of people out there. Um, but, you know, now you have this one place where your leaders are going to come in. The people who are just barely surviving the race are going to come in, make one last stab at it. You know, you're going to have, I think, the, what was it? The, the top three were within five to 10, 15 minutes of each other finishing this year. Right. I mean, that last minute drama there, that's just like spectator wise, dude, gets me, you know, just right in the sweet spot. <laughs> yeah, I I really I really like this year's race for all that, and I do I do like the idea of that, and I, I also like the idea of like you're a mile from the finish line. Exactly, you can taste it, but now you got to do backdoor. What do you do? Do you waste time winching so someone can beat you on corrected time? Mm-hmm. Do you just go for it and chance breaking it, rolling it over, ruining your whole day that way? What What are we doing? I mean, that brings the drama, like major drama into it. Yeah. I agree. But, I agree. But look at Flyler. Josh still rolled. Like he, that was, he was finishing right when he rolled yeah. on back door. Yeah. He, I mean, but he still got first. Yeah. But at the same time, it's like holy crap, dude. I mean, even going down it, just one lapse in judgment. That's the thing. And he didn't even. I mean, he he rolled on the on the top part. On not the top, even. Yeah, that's right. It was just. I didn't even see it. I just heard oh, at that point. But. It was. It, <laughs> I'm sitting here watching this guy, and he's about to finish. And at this point, um, Gomez. And whoever was, I mean, immediately after them, uh, they hadn't finished yet. And I don't think Gomez had broken his A-arm yet. Dude, it was like pulling your hair out type of drama. Oh, yeah. Oh, You're just, getting out two timers. You're like, oh, God, well, he's yeah. right here. He's right here. When's this going down? Yeah, yeah. It was absolutely awesome. Absolutely awesome. But all in all, super pleased with King of Hammers. Um, super stoked to see where the UTV world ends up. Um, really happy that we have a new King of the Hammers, uh, a new King. Uh, just really great time to be an off-road fan and uh southeast guys our season starts this weekend um west coast guys king of hammers is a kickoff for ultra four um in every other organization and in between uh just super stoked that it's finally here yeah 
But sure that's a good year. Yeah. Oh man, when it starts off this good, it's it's got to be it's got to be eventful. Uh, and and these guys, uh, Tim Cameron built an IFS car this year that has shown to be super fast uh, on oh, some yeah. hills. So that's a big kind of new mix up and new addition to the to the pot. Uh, but so much going on. Um, so that's pretty much all I had. Is there anything that we didn't talk about that you want to cover? I can't think of anything. Okay, well, cool. Uh, first thing, where can people find you on social media? Well, <laughs> uh, Instagram under Liberty underscore MTN underscore FAB. That's abbreviated for Liberty Mountain Fabrication. Uh, that's what I do more than, or I used to do that more than shop tuning. Mm-hmm. That was a bad guy. Uh, or you can get me on social media. Under Phil Lichiardi, I'll let you figure out how that's spelled. <laughs> That'd be the uh, greatest. You gotta send me a message. I'm I'm almost maxed out on friends, and I've got like a thousand something pending. Mm-hmm. But it says right on my page, you gotta send me a message. Tell me that you're not a bot or a commie. 